Well, hello there and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian and you are listening to a bonus episode of the Sustainable Minimalist Podcast. This is the first episode in a five-episode series that highlights podcast listeners just like you. Usually on this show, I interview authors and bloggers and entrepreneurs and other thought leaders on topics related to sustainability and minimalism. But I also think it's important to give everyday people like you and like me a platform, because at the end of the day, this is a show for you, about you, and its goal is to make your life better. With this series, I want to highlight real people, their real successes and their real challenges as they seek simpler and more intentional existences. Now, a quick heads up. This series is going to sound a bit different from my formal interviews. It is informal and it is minimally edited. You'll likely notice that today's chat is less of an interview and more of a friendly conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the style after you take a listen. Today, I am speaking with longtime podcast listener, Lisa Morrison, and she hails from Adelaide, Australia. She has a lovely Australian accent. I wish I had one. (laughs) And in our conversation today, we discuss bushfires, minimalist parenting, and everything in between. Enjoy my conversation with Lisa Morrison. Lisa, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show as the first volunteer of the new series, Real Life Sustainable Minimalist. What I really want to talk to you about today is your journey toward living a more sustainable and a more minimalist life. So before we get there, tell us who you are and what you do. It's always hard to know how to encapsulate yourself in a few sentences, but I'll give you the, I'll give you the bare basics. I'm 44. I'm almost 45. Um, I live in suburban Adelaide in South Australia, which is the southern state of Australia. Um, I work as a communications officer for a government agency. And at home, I have a husband, a seven-year-old daughter, um, and a two-year-old Labradoodle called Zeta, and um, lots of compost worms. Um, I think that's Apart from that, lots of plants outside, and yeah, that's probably the basics about me. Well, I love that you mentioned your hundreds of worms. <laughs> that is so sustainable minimalist of you, by the way. But right off the bat, I want to ask you about eco-friendliness in Australia. I am under the impression, and it might be the wrong impression, but I am under the impression that Australia is way ahead of the game in terms of groupthink around sustainability and laws around environmental concerns. Am I completely off base or am I right? I don't know because, um, I mean, I think it's pretty well known internationally or pretty much thought of that Australia is not pulling its weight um, in terms of action on climate change. Um, and that's certainly an area that I would love to see us do a lot more about. Um, having said that, a lot of the states in Australia are really kind of doing their own thing. And because the federal government isn't, you know, taking what certainly what I would think was enough action fast enough, a lot of the states are doing a lot of their own thing. So in South Australia, we've done a lot of things like, um, you know, we've had a real move towards renewable energy. I was trying to look up how much of our state's energy is renewable now. It's definitely more than 50%. And there certainly are days when we get to, you know, 100% or close to that just from solar panels now. 
Um, so I'm really, really proud of that. Um, it's mainly wind and solar. And we've done things, you know, reasonably ahead on, you know, things like banning plastic bags at, at shopping, you know, at, at supermarkets and things like that. Um, there's a lot of solar panels around. I think this year we were in, in our state going to ban single-use plastics um, such as, um, you know, cutlery and things like that. But that's been, I think, I think put on the back burner because of COVID. I don't know. I think there's a lot of people who really care and a lot of people who are doing a lot of really great things. But um, certainly from my family's, you know, perspective, there's not enough being done. There's still quite a lot of land clearing occurring. Um, you know, we had... We had the probably I think the worst bushfires that we've ever had affecting so much of the country last year and earlier this year. And I think that's been quite a wake up call to some people. I'm glad you mentioned the bushfires because I was going to ask you about them. I was going to call them wildfires, but those bushfires ate up a lot of media coverage here, even in the United States. And so I was wondering whether that was a shock and a wake-up call to ordinary Australian citizens or has the shock now worn off because the threat has worn off? I think the massive media coverage here um, was very quickly replaced with the same kind of coverage about COVID and I think that's a bit unfortunate because there was some momentum building. I mean I, I have shivers just even you talking about you know it being covered internationally as well um, because I was just glued to it. We were just glued to it. We spent so much of the summer just watching the CFS website. CFS is Country Fire Service. That's like the volunteer fire service in our state um, website, just watching what was happening and also watching what was happening interstate. And I grew up um, in a very bushfire prone area as a child. And I remember there being bushfires, but they just weren't of that same severity and um, didn't last as long. I mean, we had bushfires going from, I think, around October to around February or March. Um, it was just, yeah, it was incredibly scary. Um, an island here, Kangaroo Island, um, which is a big uh, spot for tourists and is a really beautiful place to go, um, about half of it was on fire or in threat of fire at one point around Christmas time. So um, we found that a really terrifying time. And although we weren't, I mean, we did leave one day because it was an extremely bad day. It was like a, what's called a catastrophic fire day. We did leave and go to another place because we were in a place that is, there are, you know, a reasonable amount of trees around and a couple of um, conservation parks that are very um, heavily forested. Um, so we did leave. And, um, yes, anyway, we weren't absolutely at threat ourselves, although we were keeping a very close eye on it. But um, much of Australia, even people living in cities, were incredibly affected by um, wood smoke over the summer. Um, my brother lives in Canberra, and it was just it was just smoke for weeks and weeks and weeks, followed by massive hail. It was hailstones big enough to be shattering, you know, damaging cars, shattering pergolas. It was, and this was like a, a few weeks later. It was just so obvious that to me that the weather the weather is broken. I definitely want to get into your journey and your personal story. But before I do, I just want to go back to the bushfires one more time. Has there been any substantial change since the threat? 
that leads you to be hopeful? Or is it simply <laughs> we're on to the next problem, which, of course, is COVID and the bushfires are a thing of the past? Yeah, I can only give my impressions of it. There's probably lots going on in the background that I'm not aware of. But there was, I think it might have, might be a royal commission. Anyway, there was some big investigation into the causes of it. And they were pretty clearly multi-factor causes, but climate change was named as a very significant one. And there, there were a lot of warnings coming up to the bushfire season that um, by people, you know, firefighting professionals, that this were the worst conditions that they were seeing. They were predicting for a long time that we were going to have a terrible season, and that's definitely what happened. There were firefighters who've been in it for decades and decades and who say that they have never seen the kind of conditions, you know, areas that that were burnt through, that were getting reburnt um, ferociously. So, I mean, I think hearing all those stories has made a lot of people realise you know, there's something really, really needs to be taken action on. But there is certainly still denial in Australia, which is so disappointing. You know, there's there's people who will say, oh, we just need to do more um, prescribed burns, which is when we do, you know, when they do burning um, to try and clear and um, like reduce the load, the, the the load of flammable materials in areas that are prone to bushfires. But um, you know, that's all that has all been occurring anyway. Um, so there's some people who won't put it down to that. And the tricky thing is with climate change that you can never say one event is climate change, but when you see, you know, we've we've had the hottest you know, I think years, every year almost is the hottest year again in Australia. I know that you have been on this sustainability journey long before bushfires. So I'm wondering if you could maybe annotate your 44, almost 45 years <laughs> and talk to us about how you found yourself concerned about the planet and where you're at today. Yeah, I was actually thinking back on a conversation I had with my best friend about 25 years ago. Um, so around yeah the mid 90s, and it was he was talking. He's actually my now my husband. <laughs> um, he was talking about being really worried about this thing called climate change, and you know, it was going to get you know really have an effect on everybody. And he was talking about some new disease called Ebola. And I really wasn't very worried about it. I mean, I had heard about environmental issues and certainly climate change probably from about 9.87 on a show that we, we saw at school um, called Behind the News. And I remember thinking at the time, and it was called Greenhouse Effect then, something like that. I remember thinking, oh, I don't need to worry about that. The adults will take care of that. And it's really horrifying that I'm now middle-aged. The adults haven't taken care of it. I'm the adult now who has to take care of it. You know, um, yeah. But anyway, at the time, I wasn't that worried, and I think, I think it was part of my belief that God is in control, which I still absolutely believe. But now I also strongly believe that part of that is my responsibility is to look after the world that He's given us, and the idea that loving your neighbour is absolutely not just the neighbour who's next door to you. Um, you know, it's the person who's affected by plastic rubbish that might end up, you know, somewhere else around the world or might entangle some sea creature. 
or the future generation, you know, the, the person who might live here in the future where I am, um, you know, have I taken care of it? Um, so, yeah, I think it's been a gradual process. My husband has been really um, instrumental in helping me to learn more and I guess I've been really receptive to um, reading and documentaries and, you know, trying to find out a bit more. He also got me into dogs too, which I was completely not interested in and didn't like and now love. <laughs> so he's been a good influence. Well, I want to ask you whether becoming a mother had any impact on your sustainability initiatives in your home. And by the way, I feel like you're not giving yourself enough credit. I'm looking at a little list of <laughs> all the things that you do in your own home and we'll get into them. But for me, I've talked about on the podcast a lot how becoming a mother, it was as though a switch kind of went off in my in my gut, my soul, when I thought beyond myself and thought about my children and their future and would they have a future. So I'm wondering, I know you said you have a seven-year-old daughter, my daughter's six, has being a mother really lit a fire under you or not so much? I think it was probably something we really contemplated and were aware of in deciding whether to have children or not. So we really did think about it a lot and decided in the end that that was something we wanted to do and that it was an expression of hope for the future and um, that we, you know, that was an, an extra stake in wanting to look after the environment and I remember being very focused on like aware of all the extra resources and things that having a child um, kind of brings <laughs> and try, trying to be as um, as I guess eco-conscious when we when we did that as possible so um, yeah I think it, it, that was something we were very much aware of and really already thinking about before we had our daughter yeah but, you know, once the child is here, you, you know, absolutely feel the most tenderness and love towards them and just want the best for them. And But probably spurred on the minimalism a little bit more because of all the extra stuff that <laughs> that occurs with children as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that you had those conversations before having a child. In my life, those conversations didn't occur with my husband. We didn't even think about it. The next step is children. And oh my goodness, I love my children. I'm so happy they're here. But now, knowing what I know, if I knew what I know now, then it would have made it a lot harder to have those children. And I say that with love because I do love my children and I can't imagine a world without them. But I also love the hopefulness that you mentioned. You said it way better than hopefulness. You said a expression of hope. And, and that's so true because as a parent, you have immense, I don't want to say power, but perhaps responsibility is a better word to create that next generation of environmental stewards. So it's all in <laughs> the outlook. So that brings me to my next question, which is, how are you parenting a seven-year-old, essentially, to become a steward of the planet? Um, yeah, I think she's, I think she has picked up on a lot of the things that we do and the reasons that we, that we do them. And 
certainly participates in them. Um, you know, even things like going for family rubbish walks and you know, picking them, picking up things that people have littered. And you know, she really gets into that. She wants to have one who has the long tongs to pick things up and and all that. So that's really good. And there is quite a bit of that at school as well, like which I think is is really nice. There's quite a focus on that. Um, I guess just to encourage her, which I don't know that that always is really works, but encouraging her not to always want more things um, that, you know, to enjoy what she has and, um, yeah, that kind of thing. But that's not easy with children. <laughs> it's really not easy. Um, and then just to participate in, in the things that we do, I guess, such as, um, you know, composting and um, gathering up things, you know, in specific places for recycling. Um, like we, we walk to school and things like that. And, you know, we do talk about how that's, you know, that's good for all of us. And, um, you know, we, we try and minimise the use of um, the car. But now the car is electric. That actually um, is really helpful as well. Well, no, that I mean, those are so many great things that you're doing in your house. I know my six and a half year old, so our daughters are close in age. She's so on board. <laughs> you know, she is almost my mouthpiece in, 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 a, in a good way. But I know that that's not going to last forever. She's going to become a tween and then a teen and she's going to do the opposite of me. So at this age, seven, six and a half, seven, they just are little sponges. And so it's a great age for creating those stewards of the planet. Now, there are some amazing things <laughs> that you've been doing in your own house in terms of sustainability. And I want to talk about them. But first, I want to talk about minimalism and how it relates to your household. I know you said you live with two maximalists. Yes, they, they absolutely describe themselves as that too. They love things. <laughs> I think there are limits to your minimalist attempts or inspiration um, when you live with maximalists. So I have tried as much as possible to focus on my own things, my own possessions and the things that I'm in control of and encourage certainly um, my daughter and my husband. But yeah, my husband's a big book collector and my daughter loves lots of toys and things like that. Um, we do have a one in one out rule for both of those things, but we still have a lot of books and toys. Um, yeah, so I think focusing on what I, I guess, can do. So my possessions are, are fairly minimalized. And I'm pretty strict on what I purchase. So I really do go through several rounds of do I need this, you know, is this something I really, really want? Um, is this replacing something else? Um, yes, yeah, so I really don't buy much for myself that isn't consumable. Um, yeah. So it is, it is really tricky because I would love to have everything super organized and, yeah, really just have what we need. But. That is not the case. <laughs> <laughs> My children, I wouldn't say they're lacking in anything. They're not lacking in toys or stuff. But because I advocate for sharing so that we don't have two sets of blocks, you only have one, I almost wonder whether I'm creating a little bit of a hoarder in my first daughter, my six and a half year old. I went into her room just today and I was putting her clothes away and she had toys stashed under her clothes, hiding them from her sister. And so 
like, I don't have the answers. It's no shock to anybody that minimalist or low waste even parenting is really darn hard. So if anybody has the answers, please reach out. Me too. And I think a lot of it probably depends on the personality of the people. So some people are very emotionally attached to things and some people aren't. I mean, we are a member of the toy library. So, you know, my daughter can get five new toys every fortnight that we then take back. And that's really helpful in keeping you know, new things happening. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I would love more answers. I would say we're definitely, I feel like I've made more progress in the sustainability side than the minimalist side. But I think they both connect at the point of, as I said, probably being strict on what I purchase and trying to purchase secondhand wherever possible and, you know, being members of groups where I can donate things to people who actually want it. So somebody who's actually looking for that kind of item and the same where we can benefit from borrowing or um, acquiring items from people who don't need them. So being part of some of those local groups, I think is helpful in not, you know, for me, not accumulating too much stuff of my own. I want to ask you, what have been your biggest successes in terms of sustainability and or minimalism? And what are you still struggling with? So you choose what you want to answer first, and I'm here for all of it. <laughs> well, there's, there's actually a show that was on in Australia, Fight for Planet A, recently on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And it was different shows on reducing energy in like your household energy and then also focusing on transport and food. And so I actually think we have focused on a lot of those areas you know, as our household, as well as waste. And there was also a great show here in Australia called The War on Waste, and that was very inspiring um, for me. So I would say that our successes fit into those kind of areas. So energy use. So um, we've had renewable energy at our house for about 18 years. So when we found out that you pay a little extra on your energy bill and then it that would be paid to buy that from renewable sources. I think that's been a really, really great thing, as well as just what's been going on in South Australia in general. Um, as well as that, we've reduced our waste a lot in recent years. Um, we only need to put our, our landfill waste bin out several times a year now. Um, and that's something that you can, every household, you know, has this one big bin. I think I said it's about I think I've translated it correctly, 37 gallons. So that's about 140 litre capacity. So most households fill that every week. So we've really got that down, which has been great. And um, I think the other ones are probably um, in transport. So we've always only been a one-car family and um, we've been really trying to walk more and live more in our local community. So Rather than, you know, thinking about which dentist do I want to go to, we've been going, okay, there's a dentist down the road. That's the one we're going to. So just trying to get around much more locally has been really good. I mentioned getting an electric car. So for those journeys that we do need to take a car, um, I think that's, yeah, we've been really successful in, in that because that reduces our emissions enormously. And probably in food as well. So we've, we're a vegetarian household um, and we buy organic and, and local as much as possible. Um, we also grow some of our own stuff, so mainly just herbs. I haven't had enormous success with other things. Um, and also in the food, certainly pre-COVID, we, I was doing a lot of shopping where I was um, buying from bulk and just yeah, buying really fresh things. I still, still do that and trying to minimise packaging. I think that's been really challenging recently because 
it's really not okay to just be turning up with your own bags when you know um, people in shops don't want to touch those kinds of things um, and you're trying to minimize your you know your shop visits and that but um, up until that I think we were doing really well in that probably did you say a challenge as well yeah what are you still struggling with what aspects do you feel as though, as hard as you try, you're still not making gains? Yeah, I think it's probably in the soft plastics at the moment. Um, it's really hard to go shopping without bringing home some soft plastics. The other thing is probably recycling. We still are recycling a lot. And I had seen that that recycling did get down a lot because I was buying a lot of stuff from bulk um, in my own jars and bags and things like that. And getting bread in you know, my own bags and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I feel like that's really crept up a lot. But I think overall, I feel like we've we've done quite a bit, and it hasn't felt um, it hasn't felt that difficult. I mean, I guess we have to acknowledge that we're in a position where we're not um, struggling to pay our bills each week. So um, it's not possible for everybody to pay a little bit extra on their bill or pay a bit extra for organic food or, you know, be so focused on those kinds of things and be really thinking about those kinds of things in making the decisions. Often for people, plenty of people, they can only make their decisions based on price. But I do think there are a lot of people who are in the position that price is not their only decision, um, you know, making factor. Um, so I, I guess I'd just like to encourage people that there are lots of small things that um, that you can do and, if you do that one thing and then you look for another thing over a time, you're really, you're really making a big difference. I love that. I was going to ask you, <laughs> what advice do you have? And you gave it without me even prompting you. A lot of us come from, not all of us, but a lot of us come from a place of abundance where we can pay a little more or do a little more or give a little more. When we do that over time, it adds up. Well, Lisa, I want to thank you so much for volunteering to come on <laughs> my little show and talk to me. I mean, that takes guts, first of all. And I gained a lot of inspiration from your story. And I know that listeners around the world will as well. So thank you so much. Oh, that's my pleasure. I so hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lisa. And now I want to hear from you. Do you like this style of interviewing? Do you like this bonus episode? Do you want to hear more or do you absolutely hate everything about it? <laughs> Be honest either way so that I can tweak my approach to best serve you. And as always, if you like the show and you do want to help it grow, please consider leaving a quick review on Apple Podcasts and thank you so much. The podcast will be back next Tuesday with a more traditional episode in which we are discussing intentional pandemic parenting. I will see you then and take care.